0: Tell us a
1: bit more about Israel. And so, if it's at all involved with biological chemical weapons? No, Israel is, you know, has it has a whole range of weapons: nuclear, biological, chemical. The biological and chemical warfare manufacturing and development is in a place called Nesiona, which is a town not far from Tel Aviv. Israel has chemical weapons, biological weapons, and uh, the biological weapons, of course, get into nanotechnology as well. But for example, just to give you one little tiny example, and that is that. Nanoweaponry weaponry is really, in, in many ways, biological weaponry. Nanotechnology has a very benevolent. If you go out, the people like nanotechnology because it's associated with biomedicine. So if you have circulatory problems, you can put up a, a nano gauge in your blood vein that measures your blood flow, and it, it's 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 a good thing. But all these are byproducts of the military, because the military is the source of these technologies, really, and. Uh, Part of, the, of, of the, the nanotechnology capability, for example, with this smart dust, you can uh, program this dust to incapacitate an entire population. You can attack a population's Gaza. You can attack a population's nervous system by nanobots that, that infiltrate into the body and contaminate the blood system or, or, or certain organs. You can use, and they're developing, you can use nanotechnology to affect the, the mind. You can take an entire population and make it forget. You can hit particular parts of the brain. You can take an entire population and make them laugh uncontrollably. In other words, nanotech, and it's really invisible stuff. So I think that these sorts of things are getting into forms of biological and chemical warfare that are much more dangerous and pervasive than the older forms. And Israel is really one of the leaders. Oh, Jeff, I'm, I was
0: almost convinced there, um, through that talk that you must be on the sales team of the, I, know, I know, I know, I know, I
2: know
0: you. <laughs> of the Israeli of the uh, industry but um,
1: yeah. somebody said that to me the other day <laughs>
0: sounds,
1: sounds great, <laughs> but, you know, where do I sign
0: <laughs> but your very important question of how does Israel get away with it it really is the elephant in the room the answer isn't it I mean, can we put anything on Malcolm X's and I've got The quote here so that I don't misquote him. The media is the most powerful entity on earth. They have the power to make the innocent guilty and make the guilty innocent. They control the minds of the masses. Malcolm X.
1: But without getting into that, part of that has to do with what I was calling uh, framing, reframing. Because the media needs to be also trained in the use of words. What are buzzwords? What are words that mislead you? Because not all the journalists are so clever. And that's really one of the specialties of Israel, is to feed journalists with a kind of a language that blames the victims and leaves the, uh, the powerful off the hook. Brian, yes. Thank you. Uh,
0: I was having a friendly argument with a comrade the other day, and he was maintaining that Israel, like the USSR, would collapse. And nobody predicted, even the criminologists never predicted the And I quoted various things from your book. And said, "Look, they've got it all sewn up. Mm-hmm. they've got the East on China, India all the rest. even
1: if America fails, they've got it all sewn up. <laughs> so, is there any is there any sign that the whole thing's Um Well, I mean, ironically, I, I mean, I maybe I'm contradicting myself, but I, I think yes, I think there is an Achilles, Achilles' heel, and that again is the Palestinians. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm I'm writing this is to is to look. I couldn't present, and it's true. I have to really think of how I'm presenting this. Uh, um, i don 't want to leave the impression that it 's all sewn up and that we 're all losing and they 're all powerful. These are totalizing weapons, and we might as well just submit that 's the, the whole idea of what i 'm trying to say is in order for us to resist and to get to a real counter hegemony <laughs> and a new system, we got to know what we 're facing and we have you know in order to develop really effective tactics so in a sense i 'm trying to to uh, empower us to resist rather than uh, and I think the Palestinians show that as well. I mean, with all this technology we're talking about, everything Israel has not pacified the Palestinians. I mean, even today, if you look what, what's happening in the last week or two, the resistance is going on. I think Palestinians have been effective in, uh, to some degree, at changing public opinion. You have BDS movements. You've, in other words, uh, there's still uh, there's still that element of resistance that. Uh, that uh, that that's, I think it has to be more effective and it has to be uh, more strategic in a way. Uh, so from my point of view, Israel, the, the whole thing could collapse. Um, not so much Israel, but the whole situation, in my view, if the Palestinian Authority leaves the scene. As long as the PA is there, with Abu Mazen and these guys, nothing's going to happen. I mean, the Palestinians are living under two occupations. Uh, and I think what could happen... and. It's between analysis and wishful thinking. With what's going on today, it's not that necessarily it's a third intifada. Uh, what's happening on the ground, but that that the um, the uh, resistance and the violence that's generated, um, especially by young Palestinians, will uh, will uh, create such an overreaction on the part of Israel. Um, because Israel has to prove to the world that it's pacifying the Palestinians. I mean, it undercuts their whole marketing. <laughs> if the Palestinians are able to, uh, to resist with rocks, uh, the, the whole IDF that's trying to tell the world that we, have, we know the way that you can uh, pacify everybody. So a lot is riding on the pacification of the Palestinians. And I think uh, it, what could happen, one scenario is, that Israel would so overreact that it would finally push Abu Mazen over the edge. And the guy would resign or the PA would collapse. I mean, the PA is seen as a collaborationist regime by its own people. Mm -hmm. And if the PA is out of the way, then I think you've got a really almost an untenable situation on the part of Israel. You've got millions of Palestinians, impoverished, no infrastructure. Uh, I don't think the United States and Europe would pick up that slack. You'd have chaos, you'd have violence. I think it would inflame the Arab and Muslim and and, and worlds, but beyond that as well. And I think that that, the collapse of the PA, that could happen soon, inshallah, um, um, would be a game changer. So that, again, you know, it's like, you know, look at the United States and all these You know, they're, they're, look at the Soviet Union. I mean, they were all powerful, powerful countries with these militaries, but with feet of clay. And in the end, you know, these big powers tend to collapse. And I think that's going to happen in the Israeli case. I think it's an untenable situation. But in the meantime, of course, Israel has a, a, a tremendous impact outside. I'm glad you said that because, I and mean, you talked about resistance, because I, I very
0: much think that what you're doing here is extremely important. I totally agree with your last point that it's we shouldn't be paralyzed by the apparent omnipotence of, of the new technologies. That's right. And um, I'd be interested to know kind of your comments on the difference between the situation. In the region now 2015 and what we saw in 2011 we had mass popular yeah, uprisings yeah. across the middle east particularly mm-hmm. you mentioned egypt now as as you said egypt is one of the strongest backers of israel in the region the egyptian regime went through an enormous crisis because of ordinary people going into the streets using non-violent largely methods of, of protest although there were some I think rightly targeted violence at the machinery of repression itself now that revolution was defeated but i think the palestinian resistance can play a really important role in potentially in the longer term the revival of that that kind of that kind of movement and i just wanted to briefly say to people quickly quickly but after patah sisi the egyptian president is, is supposed to be coming to london he's been invited officially by uh, david cameron and um, so people Want to know some information about the campaign against his visit? Then please come and pick up leaflets afterwards. And I would invite anyone here who's involved with Palestine Society, with BDS, to come and part protest against that. Because this, in terms of house demolition, CC has been flattening Rafa from the That's Egyptian side. Right.
1: So you know the struggle has to be made up. <laughs> well, a lot of it has to do with security politics again, because uh, two countries very close to each other, besides Egypt and Israel, are Israel and Saudi Arabia. And here, uh, in terms of normal politics, mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the, the mother and father of al-Qaeda and uh, certain types of Islamic fundamentalism, and it's certainly not pro-Zionist. And it can't, but you remember back in 2002, you had the, what was called the Arab Peace Initiative, which is also called the Saudi Peace Initiative. Saudi Arabia is the one that pushed through the Arab League unanimously uh, this offer to Israel that, that we'll all make peace with you if you give up the occupation, basically. And Israel, of course, said, no, but I think there was a subtext to that. And I think the subtext was Saudi Arabia was saying to Israel, we want you to be the regional hegemon. Because if you take away the Palestinians, and the Palestinians aren't seen sympathetically by a lot of the Arab world, and certainly the governments of the Arab world either. I mean, they're seen as a threat. But if you take away all that conflict, Israel has almost identical interests. With the conservative Arab regimes, I mean, Israel sent crowd control materials to the Egyptian regime when it was when it was putting down the Arab Spring, for example. You know, it needs Israel against Iran and against the Shiite forces and so on, but it also needs Israel in a securocratic way against its own peoples. So that that's a really good example of how security is translated into hegemony, because it, ironically, it's the Arab world or the conservative Arab world, let's say, that wants Israel. To be uh, the, the the hegemon, um, uh, rather than uh, than uh, you know th- than having the Arab-Israeli conflict. So another, I think the difference is the Arab-Israeli conflict took place at a time when Israel didn't have that much clout, and there was more of an ideological kind of a, of of, uh, of attention. But the minute Israel began to acquire this military-securocratic clout, that changed the whole. Now we want them to be our friends, and so on. So it's a good example of how. Everything turns on its head. i just like to ask, when the IDF have ended? Most people, they come out and say that they're frightened on forces like Do they really mean it? Is it part of the framing
0: method? Or are they genuinely terrified of, of, what, um, people, uh, of what groups like Hezbollah are capable of? Because after 2006, or during 2006 even, the, um, during that war, I think the IDF, uh, they uh, called quite off guard. Right. They were very surprised at what they encountered. Uh, of so the tanks
1: that he showed, the Hezbollah managed to destroy a few of them, and, um, right. and since then they have sort of off their rhetoric about how dangerous and capable as of force I think a lot of that is is hype because uh, I think I think you know Israel's trying to uh, you know build up uh, its adversaries, and so it, when it knocks them down, it can it, it, it makes much more of an impression. Um, for example, for example, um, one of the uh, the outcomes of the 2006 war in Lebanon, what was called the Dachia Doctrine that I write about in the book, where uh, the Israeli, the IDF, the Israeli Air Force in particular, attacked the neighborhood of Dachia in Beirut, which is uh, kind of the stronghold or the center of of the Hezbollah in Beirut. Uh, And um, uh, in the laws of war, in the Fourth Geneva Convention and in different laws of war, you're not allowed to use disproportional force, certainly against the civilian population. Um, uh, and Israel basically said, Hezbollah is such a danger, but it's a danger not in terms of Hezbollah itself, but in terms of representing the kinds of non-state actors that the global north and all these elites are, are faced with. That's, that's kind of the danger, that we need new rules to, to deal with them. And so you build them up in a way so that now you can justify the Dachia Doctrine. Unless you kill them all and, and respond in a completely disproportionate way, they're going to win. The only, so you're using them and you're using security as a way of justifying what are really illegal crime, you know, you know, war crimes, basically. Um, so, that, so that Israel applied the Dachia Doctrine to Gaza in the, last, in, 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 in the subsequent invasions of Gaza. And then it added to the doc to the Dachia doctrine what's called the Hannibal procedure, which you saw in Gaza. Um, so that and, and and through the lawfare campaign, it's trying again to get the UN and get countries to to to, to change the laws. So I think Israel Israel kind of um, yeah, I think it, it sort of uh, hypes and builds up these forces uh, because that's that's the way they can justify. Uh, not not their own. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's bigger than Hezbollah. It has to do with the whole range of non-state actors that the global north is trying to fight. So that what you have to do is not only develop weapons to beat his. that's not so hard. They could beat Hezbollah in, in terms of, I mean, this, uh, the, the, the main thing is how do you create uh, a legal system, I, I think, that allows armies to unleash the power it has. Well, the, the problem that Israel has with Hezbollah and the Palestinians is it's constrained to some degree by international law, by the issue of war crimes. You know, Netanyahu comes to London, and hundred thousand people sign a petition to, to have him arrested. You've got to. Che- that's the danger, you see. So, in a sense, to create a situation where the states have the absolute unfettered ability to attack and kill anybody they want to. You use Hezbollah as a kind of a straw man to set up that, that situation, and then by justifying it through Hezbollah, then you can spread it and apply it to other places. It's, it's kind of Hezbollah writ large.
2: Language, the misuse, and the double speak. Right. Why does it always come across as American? American?
1: American? American. <laughs> Uh, now you I see what know. I mean. Some of the no, words
2: you've used and you've explained how they've been twisted, it always comes across as American. Why? <laughs> I don't understand the question. You, you, you've used the word security right. and you've defined how its definition has been twisted.
1: And but, but Cameron twists as much as,
2: yeah, yeah, okay. as Obama
1: does.
0: But, there's been lots of other words which have come out, and they will all come out as American, and I can't understand this. Is there an Israeli institute in
1: America to devise these formulate words? Uh, yes. Yeah. Actually, there is. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy, and you can look it up, is a guy named Fred Lutz, yes. who's the, the main speech propagandist for the Republican Party. He's the one that develops things like... Um, you know, when you're, when you're attacking uh, uh, women and, uh, and abortion and women's rights and so on, you call it family values. You see? He's, and, and he has a dictionary. I mean, you can, it's, on the, it's on the internet. There's a dictionary that you use when you're defending Israel. How do you frame the conflict in a way that Israel comes out good, the Palestinians come out bad, and so on? What's and it's a name, very thought again? out... What's his name again? Fred Lutz, L-U-T-Z. And, uh, you know, he works very closely with AIPAC and works very closely with the Republican Party. He's advising Trump. I don't know how good doing with Trump. And uh, so, yeah, there is an industry that, uh, that does that. And, of course, it's connected to advertising. I mean, you've got, you know, Israel hires PR firms all over the world. The whole thing of pinkwashing, where Tel Aviv becomes the capital of gay culture in the world. You see how liberal we are. Calendars or Esquire magazines that have women soldiers in khaki bikinis on the beach in Tel Aviv carrying guns. I mean, it's a, they're very sophisticated in the, in the manipulation of images and so on. And so it isn't just a kind of a happenstance thing. I think it is a very thought-out type of, of framing part
2: of the uh, campaign. Given that Israel is such a massive exporter of macro-macro-nano security, right. to what extent do you think that Israel is nevertheless a tool of American hegemony, and how much is it um, an independent hegemon in its own right?
1: It's not so much a hegemon in its own right, I think. It's still a small country. A tool
2: of um,
1: but, but I don't think it's a tool. I think, I think it serves. Like I said, it serves the hegemons. Uh, and um, so it, it identifies, it isn't a tool in the, in the sense that it's... Um, doing something it doesn't want to do, or, or that the United States is telling, it, it's proactively telling the United States what it has to do in order to keep its, uh, its hegemony. You, you see? So, it's, it, there is a kind of a partnership there, in a, in a, in a sense. Uh, and uh, and But, you know, Israel also has, and I write about this as well, its own agency. It's very clever, I have to say. I mean, I sound like I'm some pro-Israeli guy now. but For example, you know, um, the enemy of the United States today is China. I mean, China is really what the United States is concerned about. Uh, I think before ISIS, I think what the United States was looking to do was to try to get out of the Middle East and do what's called, what called the Asian pivot. It's moved the whole Sixth Fleet into the Pacific. It's, China is its real concern. Well, who's the number two arms supplier to China? <laughs> it's Israel. The, the whole this, this wonderful ally of the United States, mm-hmm. Netanyahu is every three days talking to the American Congress. Israel is is uh, you know and and during Bush the the son's presidency, George W, the Deputy Secretary of Defense was a guy named Richard Perle, mm-hmm. who was one of the Richard Jewish Trump. neocons, yeah, very much uh, you know for American hegemony and using Israel and so on. But when Israel started to sell Falcon uh, surveillance planes to using American technology to China, Richard Pearl threatened that the United States would cut diplomatic ties with Israel. That was a degree to which Israel was really compromising uh, uh, American because it was transferring American technology to China, and that was that sort of so. Uh, you know, I mean, for, for a Jewish neocon, Israel became a threat. So you can imagine... So what I'm saying is, Israel has its own agendas as well. And I think, I you know, people ask me, what would Israel do if the United States ever abandoned it? I think the opposite is more likely. I think, you know, if when Israel sees a change where the BRICS countries begin to rise, and China begins to rise, and the United States, you know, is faltering and so on, man, Israel could switch horses in a minute. It's, it, you know... Uh, Kissinger used to have a saying that countries don 't have friends, they have interests, and I think that Israel is very very much very calculated and it, it, it plays uh, you know it plays both sides it's, it gets close to Pakistan to some degree, but it 's very close to India. If you look at Israel as a case study of how a little country manipulates and does security stuff and uh, fills niches and all of that is really very revealing in terms of how this Machiavellian kind of a world works, more than if you're looking at Britain or the United States.
2: And there's one more question, but I deleted that for time. I shall post the entire interview at unwelcomeguests.net slash 728. We continue with a reading of an academic paper. This is in the journal Surveillance and Society and it was published this year by lecturer Ben Harbisher. The title is Unthinking Extremism Radicalising Narratives That Legitimise Surveillance and it's written for an academic audience, so I'm gonna summarise my understanding of it. If you wished to control a society through a strategy of tension, carrying out terrorist acts where needed to pacify a population. How would you do that? Well, you'd need to have some well-trained and well-hidden terrorists. Well, we've just looked at Operation Gladio. One of the problems you would have would be these institutions, such as Law and Order, would keep getting in the way, saying, hey, we've got a crime committed here. I wonder what we've got in the way of evidence. Let's use some of our detective forces to try and see what's going on, and if necessary, put these people in jail. Well, that, of course, is what happened, and that's why Gladio was exposed. So perhaps you had another program, let's call it Gladio B, and you thought, how can we prevent that problem from recurring? One way could be to have a totally separate group of institutions with a special remit called terrorism. If they were allowed, in certain circumstances, to override the normal procedure, so you didn't, for example, have to present a legal case against bin Laden, you just said, we're the terrorist experts and we know bin Laden did it, that would save a lot of potential difficulty in courts. You might wish to not have a particularly clear remit about exactly what was going on so you might want to say couple this to some fairly fuzzily defined terms and you might want to work on the flexibility of these terms perhaps you could begin by talking about muslim extremists if you owned the corporate media system you might be very tempted to overreport and emphasize the muslim angle of terrorism as has happened as we've heard Then you could gradually start to change, just talk about extremists. Then maybe you could talk about domestic or homegrown extremists or homegrown terrorists. And gradually, could you, by doing this, changing the use patterns over time, get people to associate any kind of dissent and disagreement with public stories told by government and the corporate media as extremism? Well, this is my interpretation, I'm going beyond what the author says in the paper, but I'm not describing a hypothetical set of institutions that might be set up. These are called fusion centres in the paper, and they do appear to have been rolled out across Western Europe at least, North America and many other countries, and we're going to hear some of their defining characteristics and what really interests me is how this is shaped to the language which is being introduced as if there is a small group of people, perhaps the top echelons of the counter-terrorism team who understand that their job will include terrorism on occasions because without terrorism there is no counter-terrorism and they work for a paycheck and you have larger swathes of people in other institutions older institutions who haven't understood that for example 911 was an inside job how could you not understand that well if your salary depended on not understanding it that would be a barrier but most people simply aren't that venal in the case of something like 911 so this needs to be buttressed by a supporting framework of frames vocabulary as well as media exposure, it all works together. It's a totality to help people put two and two together and get five. And the quote of Malcolm X about the power of the media is quite apposite. and let's not do their job for them. Let's be aware at least that phrases such as war on terror, the global struggle against violent extremism, Domestic extremism. These are categories and phrases which have been very much worked on to achieve the ends of the people behind those who did the work. I will say no more because I want to have as much of this paper as possible. I'm aware that it's written for an academic audience. I'm not a sociology professor, so I had to listen to this several times to really get the most out of it. And I should think the same is possibly quite likely also true. If you are listening on the radio and you'd like to download it, of course you can do so, as always, at its separate page. This is unwelcomeguest.net slash 728. And as a bonus, I will make the full paper downloadable via audio, even if I can't include this in the show due to time limits. Unthinking Extremism Radicalising Narratives That Legitimise Surveillance By Ben Harbisher of De Montfort University Abstract The aim of this paper is to determine how Britain's public authorities, the intelligence community, and key members from the private sector have come to define common activists as terrorists. In short, newfound terms such as extremism have been popularised to condemn the activities of groups such as al-Qaeda and ISIS, Islamic State, but at the same time they have been liberally applied to campaigners for the, quote, far less politically correct deterrence of dissenting public discourse, unquote. This paper therefore agrees that, with the application of terms such as extremists to Britain's campaigners, These signifiers have notably radicalised protest groups, not by virtue of their actions per se, but by way of the very deliberate repositioning of activists within counter-terrorism frameworks and national security discourse. Comparatively, this paper provides a response to Monaghan and Walby's 2012 call for further research into how terror identities have become organising rubrics which define how threats to national security are identified and shape the responses from local government and regional stakeholders to such problems. In this respect, the paper considers a number of policing operations, public policies, and the introduction of a strategic dialogue through the West designed to provoke a unilateral response to terrorism, extremism, and radicalisation. Introduction Some of the most recent debates in surveillance studies have examined the rise of multi-agency security organizations throughout North America that have become known as DHS fusion centers that's Department of Homeland Security identified by Monahan Newkirk Monahan and Walby as being composed of local authorities police agencies security organizations and members of the private sector there were over 70 such centers operating in the U.S. alone by 2014. The fusion centers were established by the Department for Homeland Security following recommendations made by the 9-11 Commission's report into the lack of a cohesive security infrastructure in America leading up to the attacks on New York in 2001. DHS fusion centers were intended to serve as early warning networks to identify terrorist threats to the US and coordinate a timely response to potential terrorist assaults. According to Monaghan and Palmer, the Department for Homeland Security absorbed and restructured 22 federal agencies from 2003 onward and now constitute well over 70 such groups across North America. While descriptions of fusion centres vary from one case to another, there are a number of commonalities which remain cogent throughout. Firstly, they are hybrid intelligence centres, which fuse together public-private partnerships. They operate at federal and regional levels and share a pool of resources, although they receive central direction for their efforts under DHS administration. Fusion centres are responsible for the local delivery of national counter-terrorism initiatives for the territories in which they operate, even though the scope of these activities includes other business areas as well. Notably, as their membership is relatively broad, not restricted to one administrative office or organisation, they hold the capacity to gather vast amounts of data from both public and private reserves. According to the Department for Homeland Security, quote, located in states and major urban areas throughout the country, fusion centers are uniquely situated to empower frontline law enforcement, public safety, fire service, emergency response, public health, critical infrastructure protection, and private sector security personnel to lawfully gather and share threat related information. Unquote. In relative terms, this means that fusion centres have the capacity to tap into telecommunication streams, public transport records, state-run or privately owned automated number plate recognition systems, CCTV footage, and many other sources of intelligence gathered from public archives. Indeed, this is situated explicitly for the purposes of providing an interagency response to terrorism-related matters, and to enable a better policing service for preventing serious organised crime. Nevertheless, what remains new about fusion centres is their relative autonomy from central government, working instead at a federal level and basing their operations on local jurisdictional matters. Furthermore, having received government start-up grants in a number of cases, they've become self-sufficient quangos, that possess a comparative degree of independence from the state. However, an alarming trend in the uses to which fusion centre surveillance is being put relates to the ambiguity of their activities, to respective oversight limitations, and to the expansion of their interests into other areas that do not necessarily equate to terrorism. As Torin Monaghan notes below, the mission creep of America's fusion centres has steadily ventured into a number of domains which have very little or nothing at all to do with the war on terror. Quote, the primary goal of fusion centers is to engage in intelligence sharing for counterterrorism purposes. However, they have been used for a variety of other purposes, such as basic policing, spying on social movement organizations, or restricting legal public activities, such as taking photographs. Unquote while significant attention should be paid to the changes that these institutions have brought about, especially in the context of policing activities, mass surveillance, and for matters of public administration, of greater concern is their capacity to create new risk categories which follow the same form and level of threat as mass casualty acts of terror. As suggested by Monaghan and Wolby, Modern intelligence agencies have blurred the categories of terrorism, extremism, and activism into an aggregate threat matrix. Indeed, this has also been noted by the British government, who stated in a 2009 review of national security policy that in the war against terror, quote, the lines between terrorism, subversion, and legitimate dissent and protest may become increasingly blurred. Unquote and this has most certainly been the case for Canada, the United States, and in the UK. The new terror identities that have been created in response to this aggregate threat matrix are depicted in their Canadian context as being acts of multi-issue extremism, or rather as MIEs. However, beyond the above conceptualization of the term, the notion of multi-issue extremism has been used extensively by the Canadian authorities since at least 2008, with a number of variations seen throughout the Western Hemisphere in recent years. In this respect, online activist group Statewatch has reported that, In June 2010, the US, EU and its member states issued a Declaration on Counterterrorism which called for an effective and comprehensive approach to diminish the long-term threat of violent extremism, and highlighted the importance of countering the threat of homegrown violent extremism and of sharing of lessons learned and best practices. Respectively, both the Canadian Security Intelligence Service CSIS, and the Integrated Threat Assessment Centre make reference to such classifications in public-facing reports on the nation's strategic response to terrorism. It can be claimed, then, that the deployment of terms such as multi-issue extremists, or even multi-issue groups, illustrates a change in thinking, from perceiving terrorism as something ordinarily undertaken by radical actors from overseas, to the pursuit and prevention of domestic or political threats instigated by dissidents from within the homeland. MIEs are therefore designed to provoke an equivalent national security response to terror attacks, far-left and right-wing acts of extremism, and for politically motivated campaigns that use direct action as a means to facilitate dissenting public discourse but most worryingly of all, they're being imposed upon legitimate protest groups, irrespective of First Amendment or European human rights laws. In this respect, Monaghan comparatively states that, quote, Fusion centres have also been implicated in scandals involving covert infiltrations of nonviolent groups, including peace activist groups, anti-death penalty groups, animal rights groups, Green Party groups and others. Unquote. Although the threat of international terrorism remains a very real and pressing matter for all members of modern society, a sidebar comment from me, traffic accidents kill hundreds of times as many people as terrorists. Back to the text. The combination of interests and values represented by fusion centers in the US has enabled these networks to stigmatize and surveil protest groups who pose an economic threat to their stakeholders. In the run-up to the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics, for example, ITAC ran a campaign to discredit amalgamated opposition to the Games under the No Olympics on Stolen Native Land banner. This indicates that fusion centres such as ITAC deliberately confiscate and reinvent security classifications to meet financial or political aims, especially where core members of these intelligence communities are local contractors or sponsors of the events in question. So not only do fusion centres represent a blurring of the lines between terrorism and legitimate dissent, but they also highlight a conflict of interests between the state, its corporate associates, and their subjects, by defining domestic threats on an equivalent scale to international terrorism. To further this concern, Albie notes that the reclassification of campaign groups, such as MIEs, was legitimized by risks perceived to the provision of domestic utilities, economic institutions, and commercial operations in Vancouver 2010. Indeed, such factors remain central to how counterterrorism discourse is being mobilized to align acts of terror with public protest throughout many Western states. This can be seen especially in the UK, in which language concerning critical public infrastructure has been used to legitimize the surveillance of campaigners and the mobilization of multi-million pound public order actions by the police. This paper therefore argues that MIE terror identities are not unique to Canada or the US, but instead form part of a wider international effort to initiate cross-border security networks, share relevant information among the intelligence community, and disseminate key strategic solutions to acts of terrorism and multi-issue extremism. Indeed, the ultimate aim of such practices is to rationalise all forms of extremism, including public acts of dissent, for their capacity to incite civil unrest via the disruption of state-sanctioned activities. And this is where I removed the middle third of the paper, I'm afraid, but we pick up with the concluding sections. In a similar respect, the RICU was set up exclusively to provide a consistent and strategic response to the threat of terrorism by regulating all public-facing communications. In other words, the RICU determines what messages are to be received by the general public and how such discourses might then be interpreted. The shift from GWAT to GSave, as articulated by the RICU, repackaged terrorists as being violent extremists for the simple fact that using terms such as a conflict of cultures or jihad reiterates anti-Western sentiment. It was considered that these particular ideas were among the main factors adding to the legitimacy of terrorist acts, and would otherwise lead susceptible individuals towards radicalization. As a result of the wider dissemination of key counter-terrorism narratives in the UK, mainly through public sector and domestic media outlets, the RICU has gained a vast and unsuspecting audience. In what became known as Britain's strategic dialogue against terrorism, contest stakeholders such as local government authorities, members of local and national industry and the police, deliver G-SAVE narratives to the general public. By virtue of the British Constabulary's remit to prevent acts of terrorism, the strategic dialogue has also become a useful tool for legitimising public order actions as well, particularly in relation to acts of multi-issue extremism. From the UK government's Strategy for Countering International Terrorism, quote, we may face challenges from non-State actors, whether motivated by ideology or not, who employ the methods and tactics of terrorists, but do not conform to historical models of terrorist groups. Unquote. Therefore, the terminology of GSAVE came to encompass undesirable activities against the State, under the banner of prevent, and euphemized insubordinate political interests as being potential acts of terrorism. Under Prevent, Terrorists became Violent Extremists, and, as of 2004, Direct Action Activists became known as Domestic Extremists. While this may seem a tertiary definition at best, the power which can be summoned from this term is now undeniable, as with Walby and Monaghan's notion of MIE in its Canadian context. Domestic Extremism is simply Britain's version of an MIE discourse within a comparative aggregate threat matrix. Indeed, according to the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, domestic or multi-issue extremists remain a very serious threat to the Canadian state and are regarded, on a comparative level, to Islamic extremists. So, how does such a term find political agency if the government has published a volumetric account of material on the subject in the public domain? Well, in the first instance, all of the public sector and private interests who identify and mitigate risks to the broader population have come to use it, ostensibly for the wider condemnation of activists as extremists, but far more conventionally to criminalise the activities of terrorists. Indeed, this is notably how the term has been popularised by Britain's fusion intelligence centres in what can otherwise be determined as the mission creep of counterterrorism doctrine in the UK. Moreover, evidence suggests that Britain's emergency planners regularly make use of the strategic dialogue when defining political and environmental actions, and it's the sheer regularity of the term from which it derives its potency. According to the Guardian newspaper, in 2009, The term domestic extremism is now common currency within the police. It's a phrase which shapes how forces seek to control demonstrations. It's led to personal details and photographs of a substantial number of protesters being stored on secret police databases around the country. Senior officers describe domestic extremists as individuals or groups that carry out criminal acts of direct action in furtherance of a campaign. These people and activities usually seek to prevent something from happening, or to change legislation or domestic policy, but attempt to do so outside of the normal democratic process. Unquote. Most recently still, the City of London police has been accused of using the strategic dialogue to undermine anti-capitalism protesters in the UK's capital. In a letter circulated to members of London's business district, police warned traders to remain vigilant following a series of terrorist attacks. The communication informed them of three high-profile assaults that were likely to have repercussions around the world and cited the most substantial risks to those in the city as being posed by international groups from the Republican interests in Ireland. The memorandum contained an account of militarist incursions in Pakistan, Belarus and Solano by factions such as Al-Qaeda and the revolutionary forces of Colombia. But what was most surprising was that the document held a relatively small group of demonstrators who were camped out on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral, as posing the greatest threat of all to British society. The following letter typifies how domestic and violent forms of extremism are depicted as being part and parcel of the same MIE problem. Despite a nominal attempt by police to differentiate between international and domestic concerns, the terrorism-extremism update situates both public order in international affairs within the same MIE narrative, because terrorism equates to extremism, and extremism can be used to describe any form of dissenting public action or violent activity. The question over this operational ambiguity also forms the focus for this paper, for the deliberate blurring of lines between terrorism, subversion, and legitimate dissent are the radicalising narratives that have come to legitimise surveillance. It is essential, then, to re-examine the concept of a multi-issue extremism, for, under the remit of CONTEST, Britain's strategic dialogue seeks to stigmatise campaigners before any offence has been committed. Indeed, under the UK's Terrorism Act 2000, counter-terrorism programmes such as CONTEST, Prevent and Resilience depict animal rights activists as being terrorists – Evidence to corroborate this claim can be found in the UK government publication Animal Welfare Human Rights, which typifies the way that Britain's public authorities aim to discredit campaigners. In this respect, according to the Home Office, the activities of animal rights activists are, quote, considered to be acts of terrorism, unquote. Indeed, the government's thinking on this matter quite clearly states that, quote, "'Animal rights extremists are organised in a quasi-terrorist cellular structure across the country,' thus legitimising links between political action and terrorism.'" Nevertheless, it's not merely animal rights and anti-capitalist activists who are being discredited as extremists under the UK's counter-terrorism laws. For a good number of single-issue, human and civil rights and multi-issue causes have also been subjected to similar levels of scrutiny— and police intervention, but it's important to understand both how and why such groups have been positioned within these counter-terrorism frameworks in relation to the values they oppose. Civil Contingency Planning and Resilience Britain's institutional affair with risk-aversion politics began in 2001 with the introduction of the Civil Contingencies Secretariat, the CCS which was designed to assume a number of roles previously conducted by the Home Office. The CCS was principally formed to moderate significant risks such as those posed by international terrorist groups and those which may arise as a result of cataclysmic industrial incidents. Yet it was also intended to ensure the ongoing services and political integrity of centralised government, which aligns its particular area of expertise with managing volatile or subversive threats to society. In terms of crisis management, the Civil Contingency Secretariat works alongside collaborative partners such as the Police, the Security Services, the Office for Security and Terrorism to develop resilient scenarios for a number of proposed threats to the UK. Part of the initial role for the Civil Contingency Secretariat was to define a number of institutions and operational systems without which the nation would become vulnerable to attack. The Secretariat's examination of national security protocols resulted in the Civil Contingencies Act of 2004. The Civil Contingencies Act replaced obsolete programmes with civil defence and provided new legislative grounds from which a state of national emergency could be declared such as the Civil Defence Act of 1948, under the Act, a number of stakeholders would come to define the greatest threats to their constituencies in a similar context to the DHS fusion centres. Key members from both the public and private sectors became officially responsible for maintaining local risk registers in which any perceived threats to their actions were identified and kept under close surveillance. According to the British government, these regional dossiers are compiled into a nationwide dossier. In 2015, they stated, The National Risk Register of Civil Emergencies provides an updated government assessment of the likelihood and potential impact of a range of different civil emergency risks, including naturally and accidentally occurring hazards and malicious threats, that may directly affect the UK. It also provides information on how the UK government and local respondents, such as emergency services, prepare for these emergencies. Under the Civil Contingencies Act, the grounds upon which a state of national emergency could be declared include risks to the provision of power, the supply of food or money, and the distribution of petroleum products. Ostensibly, this criminalises environmentalists and anti-globalisation campaigners who try to disrupt such vital services, and posits them, within Britain's national security framework, as domestic or multi-issue extremists. In comparison to Monaghan and Walby's earlier considerations regarding Canada's critical public infrastructure, the notion of protecting Britain's critical national infrastructure has astounding similarities, especially where public dissent now constitutes a form of extremism. The Civil Contingencies Act enabled Britain's governing authorities to establish a series of networks that fused together both private and public interests who identify and mitigate the risks posed to each individual catchment. Britain's Local Resilience Forums, LRFs, document threats to each region according to the function of local and national government the strategic value of industries based therein, and the overall maintenance of services to the general public, such as fuel, power, health care, money, and so on. Britain's regional risk registers are compiled into one nationwide dossier, under which threats such as extreme weather, animal or human-born pathogens, terrorist attacks, and even public demonstrations, constitute the many threats conceived to the general public. There are 38 LRFs in England and Wales, and while their preliminary remit is to ensure the regional delivery of resilience, they are not specifically terrorism analysis centres, for their scope is much broader. However, they are largely responsible for the dissemination of counter-terrorism narratives under the Prevent Manifesto, and it is under this rubric of risk aversion and contingency planning that MIE categories are identified to shape the response of local emergency responders. While UK resilience does not specifically list protests as posing an inherent threat to public safety, a more regionally focused search for the criteria which constitute a civil emergency reveals that a good number of local resilience forums list protests as a severe risk category. Indeed, this programme functions in a similar jurisdictional context to the way in which the DHS fusion centres in America identify their own agendas at a local level. In this respect, the LRFs consider public acts of dissent as a pressing issue for sensitive commercial sites, which are to be protected at all costs from terrorists and other malicious threats. To corroborate this notion, the North Yorkshire Local Resilience Forum performed a review of Operation Harmony in 2006, which was a coordinated effort between local government authorities and emergency responders to contain a mass environmental protest in Selby, and the LRO feedback document on Operation Harmony points out that it cost in the region of £4.5 million. Pounds. The joint operation was a coordinated public order action at Drax Power Station, which, according to the North Yorkshire Police, was... The first time that domestic extremism had taken place in the county. However, what the report does not allude to is the nature of collaborative efforts between private industry and the public sector in relation to resilience planning. According to the Civil Contingency Secretariat, quote, energy services in the UK are wholly privatised and therefore a range of private companies and government organisations are involved in emergency planning for the sector, Naturally, resilience efforts will include utilities providers, local government authorities and emergency responders. However, in relation to the management of key infrastructure sites, it's also commonplace for private security firms employed by commercial stakeholders to be briefed on any forthcoming matters. For example, during Operation Median at Ratcliffe-on-Saw Power Station in 2009, G4S, Gurkha Security Services and E.ON were extensively consulted in the planning stages of the dispute, which also involved undercover operatives on loan from London's Metropolitan Police. Conclusion MIE discourse has an international concern. While evidence from international scholars suggests that MIEs are being created under the subdifuge of national security discourse for policing public protests as criminal acts against the critical public infrastructure, there are clear and evident links to be found between public-private interests within the fusion centers of the UK, Canada and the US. Following the program of privatization that took place during the 1980s, Britain's former national industries now constitute a substantial part of this program In the UK, at least, the bulk of organisations comprising the critical national infrastructure are commercial ones, although they are joint stakeholders, as with seats of local government and emergency responders. In one respect, that alone might justify the fusion of state and private interests that now monitor the terrorist-slash-extremist threat to the UK. However, the capacity of these organisations to radicalise protest groups under the same rubric as the UK's counter-terrorism doctrine, seems all too convenient to their commercial or political aims. What serves as a greater concern, though, is the premise that there now seems to be a unilateral effort in the West to combat all forms of extremism under the same banner of MIE-slash-terrorism, with limited oversight at local, national or even at a continental level. While this study further articulates Wolby's earlier conceptualization of MIEs and their use by fusion centres to control acts of dissenting public discourse, what remains outstanding is to lay the groundwork for future research into similar PREVENT programmes across mainland Europe. For sure, it's already been noted that Canada, the US and the UK have comparative fusion centres already in existence, or those which are currently emerging, Yet this is only the start of what promises to be a coordinated effort across the Western intelligence community and beyond. Indeed, Jones shares these concerns, stating that, quote, In 2012, Europol and the DHS began to cooperate on the issues of countering violent extremism and setting up and maintaining fusion centres. This cooperation has taken the form of reciprocal visits, meetings, briefings and training sessions and makes up a small but potentially significant part of the EU-US cooperation on radicalisation. Work on fusion centres, information gathering and analysis units, seems to be a new area for transatlantic discussion." To further develop Europe's emerging network of fusion centres, Examples of current establishments include the UK's Joint Terrorist Analysis Centre, JTAC, Denmark's Centre for Terror Analysis, the Joint Centre for Countering Extremism and Terrorism in Germany, and Spain's National Centre of Anti Terrorist Coordination. These unilateral fusion centres have established a clear dialogue with other transatlantic and continental partners, such as JTAC and the DHS but evidently far more research needs to take place in terms of the central effort to police terrorism and counter the threat of multi-issue extremism. Further avenues for research should, in this respect, consider joint forums for sharing good practice such as the Club de Madrid Group and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. This and all previous episodes are available for download from an MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net. Slash archive. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie.
1: <laughs>